Well, as with any Sunday, I just said it, today is a great day, not just because people get together to worship the Lord, a great reminder, that is why we're here today, but more so because today we get to celebrate the resurrection. I certainly hope this isn't it. Once again, don't, don't rely on your calendars to, uh, to look forward to next year to when you, you do this again. I know for myself, um, today is a day that I enjoy because I, as your pastor, get to push aside all the nonsense of Easter um, because it is nonsense. And uh, it's no different than Santa Claus and all the garbage that goes on at Christmas time. And uh, I don't care if it's fun and exciting, doesn't matter. That's not what it's about. So for me, I like the fact that we can push aside all the nonsense of Easter and we can actually just talk about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. As some of you have probably heard me say many times over the years, the resurrection is the capstone in the arch of Christianity. Uh, you might say it is the, the finishing touch. It is the deciding factor, the exclamation point that separates the church of Jesus Christ from every cult and from every false religion on the planet. As Christians, we talk a lot about the atonement on the cross, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we should. That's absolutely something we should always be focused on, okay? But on the cross, when Jesus died, we got to look forward three days later to the fact that he rose again. The atonement is outstanding. It is the reconciliation of God and man. But too many times, that's where the storyline ends, right? A friend of mine saw Ben-Hur for the first time, one of those great classics. Victor loves that movie. And the person said it was a great movie, but wished it would ended with the account of the resurrection. Well, this time of the year, obviously today specifically, churches spend a lot of time talking about Easter without spotlighting the resurrection. Now, I realize that sounds almost impossible. doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but sadly, there are many liberal churches today that will spend a lot of time talking about family. They will be talking about all those new clothes you girls mentioned earlier, and they will only mention just a short little mention of the resurrection. And that's amazing to me because Jesus himself in John chapter 11, verse 25, which is one of the great, uh, he made seven I am statements, right? You remember those I am statements? And here he said, I am, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying that embodied within himself is resurrection and life. And with, with saying that, how do you diss the resurrection? Jesus Christ knows what it means to live even though he died. In Acts chapter 26, verse 23, is told that Jesus would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead. He would be the first to, if you will, 
resurrect. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, Paul says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He says he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. By the way, the term fallen asleep is just talking about Christians who have died. But he's the first fruits because you know, when Christ rose, you know what that tells us one day for ourselves? We too will rise. Now, with this being our focus this morning, let me just share with you what led up to this point. And in his book entitled The Third Day, Hank Hennegraff does a great job um, just putting this all together, summarizing it, if you will. He says, the best medical minds of ancient and modern times have demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ's physical trauma was fatal. His torment began at the Garden of Gethsemane after the emotional Last Supper. There, Jesus experienced a medical condition known as hematidrosis. Tiny capillaries in his sweat glands ruptured, mixing sweat and blood. And as a result, Christ's skin became extremely fragile. That same night, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was disowned by Peter, and he was arrested by the temple guard. Before Caiaphas, the high priest, he was mocked, he was beaten, and he was spat upon. The next morning, Jesus, battered, bruised, and bleeding, was led into the praetorium. And there Jesus was stripped and subjected to the brutality of Roman flogging. A whip replete with razor-sharp bones and lead balls reduced his body to quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. As Christ slumped over in the pool of his own blood, the soldiers threw a scarlet robe across his shoulders. They thrust a scepter into his hand and they pressed sharp thorns into his scalp. After they mocked him, they took the scepter out of his hand and they repeatedly struck him in the head. Now Jesus was in critical condition. A heavy wooden beam was thrust upon Christ's bleeding body and he was led away to a place called Golgotha. There the Lord experienced ultimate physical torture in the form of the cross. The Roman system of crucifixion had been fine-tuned to produce maximum pain. In fact, the word excruciating, which means out of the cross, literally had to be invented for this behavior. There was no word in the language that would show such a horror of crucifixion. And that's where the word excruciating came from, out of the cross. That's how horrifying it was. At the place of the skull, the Roman soldiers drove thick seven-inch iron spikes through Jesus' hands and feet. Waves of pain pulsated through Christ's body as the nails lacerated his nerves. Breathing became an agonizing endeavor as Christ pushed his tortured body upward to grasp small gulps of air. In the ensuing hours, he experienced cycles of joint-wrenching cramps intermittent asphyxiation and excruciating pain as his lacerated back moved up and down against the rough timber of the cross. 
As the chill of death crept through his body, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that anguished cry was encapsulated the greatest agony of all. For on the cross, Christ bore the sin and the suffering of humanity. And when his passion was complete, he gave up his spirit. At that time, countless people began to weep. Scores of his followers were mourning over the brutal death of their Lord. In their minds, the murder of Jesus was complete. Well, continuing that story, turn to Matthew 27, if you would. Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to read verses 57 through 66. This is not going to be my normal type of a sermon today, but I would like to read this passage. Matthew 27, 57 through 66. It says, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, He asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and he placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered, and go. Make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So as they drew closer to the day that Jesus talked about, what we simply will call the third day, what unequivocally will become the greatest day known in all of human history, you can see there that his enemies began to worry. In verse 64, they even thought that his disciples would come and even steal the body of Jesus and tell everybody that he had risen. Folks, starting right there, it's been that kind of mindset that has created and sparked centuries of erroneous stories about the resurrection. There are still ideas, believe it or not, out there today in the 21st century, like the hallucination theory, like the impersonation theory, the unknown tomb theory, and still others 
like, for example, the twin hypothesis. And this supports the idea that Jesus somehow had an identical twin brother. And these two are separated at birth, and they will never see each other again, they say, until the crucifixion. It says, upon stumbling into Jerusalem, he sees his mirror image on the cross, and he realizes that the Jesus of Nazareth that he had heard so much about was really his identical twin. He immediately concocts a messianic mission for Christ and carries it out by stealing the body and pretending to be the resurrected Christ. So much can be said about that. As if it was so easy, it would just be a piece of cake to have done that. Set aside the Roman soldiers, the cross, the tomb, the seal, the stone. But yet, people believe it. And then you have probably one of the well-known theories, most well-known theories throughout the years. And that is called the swoon theory. Many of you probably heard that word before, the swoon theory. The year that I was born, 1965, was a great year. Hugh Sconefield published a book, and it was called The Passover Plot. In this book, Sconefield contends that Jesus deliberately plotted his crucifixion and his subsequent resurrection. In his book, Sconefield says that Jesus contrived to be arrested the night before the Passover, fully aware that he would be nailed to the cross the following day, but taken down on the onset of the Sabbath in accordance with Jewish law. He would survive, they say, the agony of just three hours on the cross. And rather than fatal torment, Jesus merely swooned. In other words, he became unconscious. He just simply passed out. To ensure Jesus' safe removal from the cross, Joseph and an unidentified Jew concocted a plan in which Jesus would be given not the traditional vinegar, but a drug that would render him unconscious and making it look that he appeared dead. He would then be cut down from the cross in a death-like trance, removed by accomplices to the tomb where he would be nursed back to health and then resurrected. Folks, as bizarre as these things are, that book captured the imagination of people all over the world. You can just make something up like that, where people like me and you are just shaking our head and going, how stupid, but yet people will believe it They will just believe it. Even today, because we started with a lie, even while Jesus was still in the tomb, there was the first lie. But it continues even today. Today we have the lies of the modern day cults. Largest cult in the world today, of course, would be Islam. And for them, like any cult, they have to disarm Christianity in order for you to believe them. Kind of reminds me of politics, politicians, really. This guy's a scumbag. He's a dirtbag. He's a joke. He's a loser. Vote for me. That's kind of the principle. They have to disarm Christianity so you will like them. 
They feel the best way to do that is just to deny the resurrection. So in what's called the Islamic theory, in their way to explain away the biblical account of the resurrection, they simply state that Jesus was never crucified. Therefore, he never rose. According to Norman Geisler, uh, who's by far the greatest apologist who ever lived, he says that Orthodox Muslims traditionally held that Jesus was never crucified on the cross, but that God made someone else to look like Jesus, and this person was mistakenly crucified as Christ. Most Muslims, not all Muslims, but most Muslims believe that the substitute was Judas Iscariot. Jesus, though, according to Muslims, escaped the cross. He was actually, they say, taken up to heaven. And there, today, he waits for his return, where he will come back and he will kill the Antichrist. He will kill all pigs. He will break the cross. He will destroy all churches as well as synagogues. And Jesus Christ, they say, will establish the religion of Islam. He will then live for just 40 years, and then he will be buried in Medina, which is in Saudi Arabia, Arabia next to the prophet Muhammad. Folks, so many people are willing to believe just absolute manufactured lies in order to escape the consequences of their sin. It's just who, people, nobody wants to admit they need a savior, and nobody wants to admit they're sinners. So let's just not believe this. Let's find something to deny this or this so I don't have to do that. And people will follow it. You can start something tomorrow. Somebody will follow you. We've all heard um, of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, or more well-known as the Jehovah's Witnesses. Not only are the Jehovah's Witnesses known for their denial of essential Christian doctrine, like the Trinity, like the deity of Jesus Christ. They hold to the idea that Jesus is Michael the archangel, and they deny his bodily resurrection. In their book called Let God Be True, the Watchtower says, The king, Christ Jesus, was put to death in the flesh and was resurrected an invisible spirit creature. Therefore, the world will see him no more. He went to prepare a place for his associate heirs, Christ's body, for they too will be invisible spirit creatures. The Watchtower founder, his name is Charles Taze Russell, he says this, he says the body that hung on the cross was either dissolved into gases or it is preserved somewhere in the grand memorial of God's love whatever that even means. People will concoct anything in order to deny the resurrection. Once again, quoting Hank Hanegraaff, he says, if devotees of the kingdom of the cults, adherents of world religions or liberal scholars, if they are correct, he says, the biblical account of the resurrection is fiction. It is a fantasy. It is a gargantuan fraud. 
Josh McDowell, great apologist, he puts it this way. He says, after more than 700 years, he ain't that old. After more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investing its foundation, he says, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of man, or it is the most fantastic fact in human history. In case you've never heard of Josh McDowell, he was somebody that set out to disprove Christianity. But he, he saw the evidence was so clear, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. He wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and he became a great apologist. But all this begs the question, why is the resurrection story so important? Why have hundreds of books been written on it? Why have scholars dedicated their entire lives to the study of it? We have one here in Lynchburg, by the way. His name is Gary Habermas. You guys may have had him when you were in college or seminary. But here's the answer. It's because without the resurrection, folks, there is no hope. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. In other words, this is not some kind of debatable issue that like-minded Christians stand around and debate. This is an essential, an absolute essential for the Christian faith. And that's not just my opinion. The Apostle Paul said himself, there is no middle ground. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you would. 1 Corinthians 15. I know this throws everybody off when I do a topical sermon because this happens like, <laughs> like once a year. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 through 19. Paul says this. And by the way, 1 Corinthians 15 is known as the resurrection chapter. Go back and read it. It's phenomenal. He says, starting in verse 14, if Christ, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he is not, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, he says, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, he says, we are to be pitied more than all men. Is the resurrection important? You better believe it. The resurrection is not, as some people like to say, a crutch for weak-minded Christians. Simply stated, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest feat in the accounts of recorded history. Period. If there was no resurrection, the prophecies of God Almighty would be counterfeit. Jesus Christ would be a liar. His disciples would be nothing less than fools. 
and of course the rest of the Christian world, we would be deceived by the greatest trickery ever to cost the minds of men. You see, folks, without the resurrection, Christianity is doomed. Many in our world today want to believe just that, that it didn't happen. The prophecies, they're nothing more than fairy tales. Jesus Christ, like many others before him, was nothing more than a con artist. And you and I are to be most pitied. They know if they can convince the world that there is no resurrection, that reading your Bible would be futile. It would be pointless. It would be void of any logic whatsoever. As Wilbur Smith said, if you lifted out every passage of Scripture in which a reference is made to the resurrection, you would have a collection of writings so mutilated that what remained could not even be understood. In other words, you can't just start, if you plucked all the verses out that talked about the resurrection of Christ from the Bible, there's so many of them, it would be just a mash of gobbledygook, is what he's saying. You cannot take that away from Christianity without altering its character, without destroying its very identity. This is why I so much hate things like Easter or Santa Claus because it flies in the face of Jesus Christ. If only one of those theories that I mentioned earlier is correct, if just one of them is correct, there is no Christianity. There's no hope. You and I have no future. And therefore, it all boils down to this. What happened on the third day? ask yourself that question. What happened on the third day? If you're not there, you can turn back to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to pick up in verse 28 where we left off there at the end of verse 27. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. You can certainly go to the other gospels later if you'd like to, and you can read that account as well. But in chapter 28, starting in verse 1, it says, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, and he sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and even see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. What that small text of Scripture tells us right there, folks, is what gives us our confidence, that gives us, that tells us of our hope for the future. 
Folks, anybody could have said, anybody could have died. Any human being could have died for man's sin. But they would have only just died. Right? I'm going to die for the sins of man. How glorious I am. Pat me on the back. And then he dies. But folks, where would your hope be? Your hope would be in a dead man. That's it. How would you even know if there was any truth to that? How could you grab on to any, uh, an eternal expectation when all you have are the words of a man who still happens to be dead? But all that changes when death itself is defeated. Death could not hold Jesus Christ. Is that the opinion of simply one man? Is there, is there just one person in the Bible who says, hey, uh, you know, about 10 o'clock at night I saw Jesus. It was in the dark and it was behind one of those buildings. No, really, I saw him. Is that all we got? No, not even close. Luke, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Jesus gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Remember, when Jesus rose from the grave until he ascended was 40 days. He was on the earth in that area for 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God, and he says he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Many. In Peter's Pentecost sermon, great sermon, by the way, Acts chapter 2, verses 31 and 32, he said Christ's body did not see decay. God raised Jesus to life, and he says we are all witnesses of that. Once again, did he say something stupid? No, I, I, I think it was Jesus. I'm pretty sure I saw him. The, you know, it was dark out. The sun had gone down. No, we are all witnesses of that. Paul, going back to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8, he said this. He says, now, brothers, by the way, if you ever want a clear example of the gospel, this is it. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received on and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, he says, you simply believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, there's nothing greater than this. First importance, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most, he says, who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Some had died by the time he wrote this. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And then at last, he says, he appeared to me, 
to one abnormally born. Remember, Jesus appeared to, to Saul on the road to Damascus. I'm going to give a list of people that Jesus appeared to proving his resurrection. If you want the, verse, the verses for these, just come up to me afterwards. But Jesus appeared after he rose from the grave, or for some people, after he died, <laughs> he yet appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to what's called other women. He appeared to Peter, to the ten disciples, and then he appeared to the eleven, which included Thomas this time. He appeared to all of the people at his ascension. Do we ever think about that? <laughs> all those who watched Christ being taken off into the clouds in Acts chapter 1. Shouldn't they be scratching their head going, well, wait a second, but just a little over a month ago, Jesus was dead. Exactly. He appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to his disciples in Galilee. He appeared to James and the apostles, I just read that, to Paul on the road to Damascus. And then as it says there in 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. Folks, the resurrection, is it fact or is it fiction? The evidence, I believe, speaks for itself. The millions, this is very important, the millions of changed lives can speak nothing but the truth. The millions, if not billions, of changed lives can speak nothing but the truth. You see, folks, this isn't just believing some theory intellectually. It's having your faith, your trust in Christ. And when you do that, you know that he changed your very life. He changed mine. I actually sat there one day and recognized he changed me. I caught myself doing things and saying things I would have never, ever done before. But then I caught myself inside smiling and saying, but I like it. I didn't know anything, but I knew at that point Christ was changing my life. Christ will never justify those that he will not sanctify. Okay? If Christ never rose, then not one single life would have changed. If Christ never rose, every person on this planet is simply a walking dead man waiting to just die and rot. But if you know Christ like I do today, you cannot walk away from the inescapable fact that he has transformed lives literally from the inside out. The resurrection is the single most important event in all of history. His death fulfilled the sacrifice for our sins, but his resurrection proved that Jesus was who he said he was. It is the supreme vindication of his claim to deity. Who else do you know who can defeat death? In 1971, Bill Gaither wrote a song that I'm going to say that probably thousands of churches are singing or have sung today. 
And the chorus simply goes like this. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know that he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. The world has never, ever been the same because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I know that in all of our lives, we have times that we can look back on. Maybe it's our marriages. Maybe it's uh, our kids were born. But I do pray, Lord, that uh, people would realize that I didn't just come up here today to throw out some platitudes, make some cliches. But Lord, literally, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest day in recorded history. I hope, Lord, that people will grasp that truth, not just know it intellectually, but grasp that truth. And therefore, knowing that Jesus had to die. He died, Lord, to, because of your love for us. You sent him, and he was willing to go to atone for our sins, to take the place of us. We should have been on that cross. And yet you put your son there and allowed us, through faith in him, to have been born again. When Christ died, it was as if we died. When Christ rose, it was as if we rose. To a newness of life. Lord, may we stand in victory May we look forward to the end, or Dave even talked about this morning, the day of the millennial reign of Christ, the day of what we know as the eternal state, a new heaven, a new earth, where we will be with you forever, absolutely undeserving. But yet, we know we can stand there and we'll stand there because of the death and, yes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wasn't just some counterfeiter. He proved who he was. He proved that everything he said was true and everything he did was going to happen. We thank you, Lord, that we today as believers in Jesus Christ can be a part of that. We thank you that you saved our very soul, that we can truly celebrate what this day truly, truly means. And it is in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen.